0: You're listening to the Touch'em Up Podcast. I'm your host, Double M, and on today's episode, we're going to be giving you all of the newest news in the world of professional mixed martial arts. We have the UFC 254 Habib versus Gaethje recap, UFC Fight Night Silva versus Hall review and analysis, as well as giving you my predictions for UFC Fight Night. Santos versus Tashira coming your way tomorrow night, Saturday, November 7th from the UFC Apex in Las Vegas, Nevada. So without any further ado, let's get this started and step into the ring. All right, guys, how's everybody doing tonight? I hope you guys are ready for this episode because I'm ready to go. Um, it's a lot of MMA considering that. We've been on a little bit of a break. I had that Tyson Chartier interview, which if you haven't checked that out, please go out of your way to check it out. Uh, new coach of the new England cartel, uh, coaches for top contenders, Rob font, uh, you know, Kelvin cater in the featherweight division. He's got, uh, Kyle Bachniak who used to fight in the UFC gave Zabit Magomed shot a very, very tough fight. And, uh, I believe he'll probably make his way back to the UFC one day. Just a really, really solid interview, about 40 minutes long. If you have time to listen to it, I've gotten some good reviews on it. Some good, We got some good questions, good answers out of Coach Tyson Chartier. Um, I will definitely get him on the podcast again. I'm working on getting Kelvin Cater. I, as you guys know, we've already had Rob Font. We had Tyson Chartier. We have to get Kelvin Cater. So hopefully pretty soon I'll be able to have, you know, the top-ranked featherweight contender on the podcast. He's probably looking to fight. Max Holloway next, but we'll see what goes down. Obviously, Rob Font has a huge fight lined up for December 19th, going up against the top-ranked bantamweight contender who's coming off a loss to Corey Sandhagen, and that is Magic Marlon Marais. That is December 19th, as I already stated. So December 19th, Magic Marlon Morrice versus Rob Font. Can the New England cartel get the W? Uh, we'll talk about that you know, as we get closer to the fight. Uh, up first, let's talk about UFC 254. I know it's a little bit late, considering that was about almost two weeks ago. But we had a lot to cover prior to that: some predictions, some that interview, obviously. So, you know, it, it's been a little bit of a rough patch. But we got everything together, and uh, we're going to cover everything on this podcast without a doubt. Um, first off, let's talk about the big newcomer in the UFC. We're going to start from the bottom and work our way up. Um, Shavkat Rachmanov. He guillotines Alex Oliveira in the first round and gets a huge, huge debut upset win. Um, Obviously nobody really knew of Shavkat Rachmanov before he came into this fight against Alex Oliveira. He looked, very good and was able to grab the neck and get the guillotine submission. Obviously, I don't remember the exact sequence. I could look it up for you guys right now, but we have a lot to cover. Um, That's a big win for him and 170 pounds. You know, Alex Oliveira has fought some of the toughest guys in the sport. He's fought guys like Carlos Condit. He's fought um, Gunnar Nelson. He's fought Cowboy Cerrone. He's fought Max Griffin. He's fought, you know, the who's who of the 170 pound division. Uh, a lot of other guys, too. I mean, who else has he fought? If you look at his record, I mean, Alex Oliveira has been there, done that. He he lost to Donald Cowboy Cerrone. He beat Carlos Condit. Um, I believe he lost to Max Griffin, and then he uh, lost to Gunnar Nelson. But he's got some good wins to his name. Let's see. We're going to just check out some of the guys he's fought. Um, so I lost to Shavkat Rachmanov who is undefeated by the way at 13 wins, no losses, um, beat Peter Sabata, beat Max Griffin, uh, lost to Nicholas Delby, lost to Mike Perry, (sighs) lost to Gunnar Nelson, beat Carlos Petersole, um, beat Carlos Condit. So he uh, lost to Donald Cerrone. So he's fought some tough guys in the UFC and some of uh, some really good, you know, solid competition. So for Shavkat Rachmanov to come in as the undefeated fighter. Yes, he's undefeated, but I don't think he's had any competition close to the level of Alex Oliver and to get the first round guillotine um, for your debut that that's a huge, huge upset. So big ups to Shavkat Rachmanov. I believe he called out Donald Cowboy Cerrone. Um, I do I could. I don't think he's going to get that fight because I just think Cowboy's not going to take a fight. I mean, Cowboy will fight anybody, but I don't think he's going to want to take a fight against Shavkat Rachmanov. Um, he's coming off that loss to Conor McGregor. So to go from Conor McGregor to you know Rachmanov would be a big, big step down in competition considering that Rachmanov isn't even ranked and he's got only one fight in the UFC. That's too much of a risk for Cowboy Cerrone. Maybe he takes the fight because, like I said, I don't think Cowboy turns down any fights but we'll have to see what happens when we get to that bridge. Um Casey Kenny wins a close split decision over Nathaniel Wood. Uh, was it the right call? To be honest, I scored it 2 to 1 for Nathaniel Wood. I thought that Casey Kenny I believe I thought Casey Kenny won the first round. No, no. I think I gave the first round to Nathaniel Wood, the second round to Casey Kenny and the third round to Nathaniel Wood. Um you know, there was some good takedowns from Casey Kenny. That is probably what sealed up the decision for him. But there was a lot of forward pressure by Nathaniel Wood. Very good right, ho- right hand to the left hook. Um, you know, snapping the jab and then following through with the left hook on the same side. You know, hooking off the jab. Um, Casey Kenny landed some very, very, very good kicks to the body. Obviously, they were in an opposite stance, so Nathaniel Wood was going to look to circle to his uh, his left. Outside of the right lead foot of Casey Kenny. Get that outside foot dominance. That's how you want to fight when you face a guy in the opposite stance. And it's usually easier for the Southpaw fighter to take that step to the outside. We've already talked about that. Um, I think that they both did a phenomenal job. It was definitely one of my fights of the night without without a doubt. But Casey Kenny gets the close split decision. Um, I think one of the judges scored a 30-27. I think it was two twenty-nine-28s and one thirty-27. Um, no, no way in hell that Casey Kenny won that fight 30 to 27. It was definitely two rounds to one. I scored it for Nathaniel Wood. Um, A really, really good performance from both guys. Like I said, probably the fight of the night. Um, It's going to be interesting to see where Nathaniel Wood goes from here. I'm not necessarily 100% sure who they would give him next, and Casey Kenny coming off that big win over a former champion. I believe Casey Kenny was also a former champion in his division outside of the UFC. But, you know, it's a tough fight. Um, really, really solid performance. And, yeah, so Casey Kenny wins the split decision. Um, tai Avasa came back and got the first-round knockout over Stefan Struve. Looked good. Caught him with the overhand right, I believe. Dropped him up against the fence and finished him off. Um, big, big win for Tai Avasa, You know, he needed that win. He was coming off a couple back-to-back losses. I believe. Let me see. Um. So he lost to Sergey Spivak, lost to Blagoy Ivanov, lost to Junior Dos Santos. So he was coming off three back-to-back-to-back losses, Um, but he came back with a big win. Stefan Struve been around the game for a long time, been knocked out a few times. You know, it's not like Stefan Struve has the best chin. But he needed to get this win because if he would have lost to Stefan Struve, that probably was going to be his last fight in the UFC. I think he knew that because he said it was a lot of pressure coming into this fight, but he liked the pressure. And uh, he was a little nervous, but he was able to pull off the the win via first-round knockout. So it's going to be interesting to see who he gets next in the heavyweight division. But yeah, Taito Avasa coming back with that first-round K-over. Stefan Struve catching him up against the fence with that overhand right, I believe. Um. Alexander Volkov TKOs Walt Harris in the second round. Um, Beautiful finish and a a very technical performance from Alexander Volkov. You know, Volkov looked phenomenal. And the fight basically went exactly how I expected it to go. I think uh, we knew that Walt Harris was, you know, really good with movement and switching his stances, fighting out of that southpaw stance, um, constantly faking and feinting faking the kick, like the switch of the feet to close the distance and get in range, or close the range and get in closer, you know, and uh, for Volkov, he needed to keep him at kicking range. If he was able to keep him at kicking range, then he could definitely get a big fight, or, uh, or could win the fight, I should say, I'm sorry, could get a big fight. I mean, he's probably going to get a big fight with this win, but you know, it, it was a great performance from Volkov. He ended up finishing him with a front kick to the body. He caught him in, on the breadbasket front kick. Um, you saw Wal Harris just freeze up, go down, and get TKO'd in the second round. Um, the body kicks, the inside and outside low kicks from Alexander Volkov. The kicking game was was the key. You know, he was so much longer and so much more rangy of a fighter that if Wal Harris was able to close the distance and catch him, then you know it was going to be Wal Harris's fight, but the fact that Volkov was able to keep him at kicking range, keep him at the distance that Volkov wanted to keep him at, that's how he was able to become so successful in this fight. The front kicks, the side kicks. Um, the knee to the bo- the knees to the body, but just that front snap kick right to the breadbasket, <laughs> taking the wind out of uh, Volk or taking the wind out of Walt Harris, dropping him and getting him the TKO. Um, phenomenal, phenomenal performance. I think it looked like Vol- um, Walt Harris might have broken a rib because right after that kick landed, you just saw him go, Ugh! and he fell over and he was holding onto his rib cage. Um, I don't know if his rib was broken or fractured or anything, or if he dislocated it. I don't believe so because I haven't heard anything, but yeah, big win for Alexander Volkov after coming off that loss to Curtis Blades. Um, he looked pretty, he looked, he got out wrestled against Curtis Blades, but he did have a good moment. I believe it was in the third or fourth round where he, you know, hurt Curtis Blades stuff, some takedowns and was piecing him up a little bit on the feet. And I believe he even got a takedown against um, Curtis Blades. So, you know, who's next for Volkov? Um, I'm not sure. I know Derek Lewis and Curtis Blades are fighting. If Derek Lewis wins that fight, I could see them doing Volkov versus Derek Lewis too. Considering how dominant, you know, Volkov was in that fight at UFC 229, hurt Lewis to the body multiple times, hurt him up top multiple times, um, you know, hit him with a shot that that hurt his eye. But then uh, Lewis just kept pushing forward, found a way, and landed that beautiful overhand right. Dropped Alexander Volkov and finished him in the last round right at the end of the fight. So um, that could be a fight I could see getting booked again, but I'm not sure. So it'll be interesting to see who Volkov gets. I would go if Blades wins, you don't give him Volkov. If Lewis beats – if Derek Lewis beats Curtis Blades, then you give – Derek Lewis, the fight, a rematch against Alexander Volkov. And then if Volkov loses to Derek Lewis again, I think you give Lewis a, a title shot or he's right there to face um, the winner of Stipe and Ngannou when that's supposed to happen, which I believe Dana White said that's supposed to happen in March of 2021. So that's going to be interesting to see. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm kind of excited for that fight. Up next, obviously, in the co-main event, you had the former middleweight champion Robert the Reaper Whitaker getting a beautiful, beautiful victory over Jared Cannonier via unanimous decision. It was basically a dominant fight for Robert Whitaker. Um, he had a close moment in the final round where Cannonier was able to hurt him, and uh, you know it looked like Cannonier could have finished the fight, but he didn't. So, um, you know, Robert Whitaker did a, an amazing job. One of the best weapons he used was that one-two. You know, he stays on the outside, kind of hops in and out, in and out, one-two, and we knew that the speed was going to be a huge advantage for Whitaker against Cannoneer. And in my breakdown for the fight, I said Cannoneer likes to slip off the center line and use a lot of head movement instead of using traditional blocks. He lets the fight kind of come to him, gets your patterns, and then uses his head movement as the defensive mechanism to set up his slip counters, um, coming over the top of the right-hand left hook, jabbing jabbing, jabbing. If you can get past the jab of Jared Cannonier, you could probably find a way to pick him apart and pick up on his timing. I said that the one, two right high kick behind the right hand was a beautiful, beautiful weapon for Robert Whitaker considering how much Jared Cannonier slips off the center line. And you saw it in this fight. He used that up jab to the right hand, uh, Cannoneer slipped to his left to avoid the right hand, but he ran right into the right high kick. I've talked about same side attacks on this podcast multiple times and slipping off the center line of that right hand lines you up right into the line of fire for the right high kick because you're slipping off to your right side or to your left side. I'm sorry, but that is running you right into the the trajectory of the right high kick behind the hand. The punch hides the kick. It hurt. Cannoneer stumbled him. Um, He ended up getting dropped. And uh, that was the biggest moment in the fight for Robert Whitaker, but it was a lot of just faking, stepping on the outside. Um, the low kicks of Jared Cannonier were probably his best weapon, um, but Whitaker used the low kicks as well. But Cannonier's best weapon in the fight was that low kick, trying to counter Robert Whitaker stepping in and uh, blast that lead leg. Inside, outside kicks, uh, just constantly trying to take away the movement and take away the pep in the step of Robert Whitaker. Whitaker ca- uh, caught Cannonier stepping in, trying to throw the. Inside low kick with a couple left hooks. He did that against um, Darren Till as well, catching him coming in with that left hook off the break or catching him stepping into the clinch to land the left hook. Um, Whitaker, again, that right high kick, the right hand of the right high kick, um, stepping in with that right hand, bop, just kind of shifting his weight, using a shift to land that right hand and constantly throwing high kicks. The high kicks, of Robert Whittaker were the key against Jared Cannonier. He gets the win via unanimous decision. Um, they were talking about giving him a fight with Israel Adesanya, but obviously, as we know, Israel Adesanya is looking to move up to light heavyweight. He's going to go after the 205-pound championship against the current champion Jan Blachowicz. Um, We're going to talk about that fight a little bit later on in the podcast, but I love that fight. Um, for Whittaker, after getting a dominant win over Cannonier. I think that if... Okay, so we have Darren Till versus Jack Hermanson coming up in uh, December. So if if uh, Darren Till wins that fight, you don't give it to Robert Whittaker. I think Robert Whittaker, if if uh, Hermanson wins that fight, I think you do Hermanson versus uh, Jack Hermanson versus Robert Whittaker. Um, if Till wins, then Whittaker's in kind of a tough spot because Whittaker already beat Cannoneer. He already beat Darren Till, so the only logical fight for him would be to fight Robert Whittaker. Um, or the only logical fight for him would be to fight Israel Adesanya. But if Adesanya is going up to light heavyweight, if he beats Blahovic and uh, wins the light heavyweight championship, he said he would move between weight divisions. But I guarantee you that if he beats Jan Blahovic, he's going to get to fight John Jones later on in the year, or probably mid-2021 or late 2021. I think that that's probably what's going to happen. Um, if he ends up losing to Jan Blahovich, then he has to obviously... Get the he gets the medical suspension and then you you know it goes on from there, and uh, we end up seeing what happens if Blahovich beats Adesanya and that fight gets gets booked, then you know it it takes away the middleweight champion. You'd have to set up a fight for the interim title, and it, it's just a mess. Um, I'm excited because I want to see what Israel looks like at 205 pounds, um, and it should be a good fight. And one thing I think that people are are discounting is that. Adesanya, yes, he's a he's beautiful. He's a beautiful striker. The best striker in the UFC, in my opinion. And Blahovic has been knocked out before. But the problem is Blahovic is it has a very awkward style of striking. And he finds these little openings because he throws his shots weird. Sometimes he'll loop his punch over. He'll loop his punch and kind of drive it down into you. He doesn't throw it straight. He doesn't throw it as a traditional overhand. He kind of throws it on a like a corkscrew punch and that can catch Adesanya with his head movement or when Adesanya comes in to try to counter, if Blahovich can slip and come over the top or come up the center. Um, there There is a, a path to victory for Jan Blachowicz, and I think a lot of people are counting him out, saying that Adesanya is just a better striker. He's the better fighter all the way around. He's going to pick him apart at range. Yes, that's probably what's going to happen, but Blahovic can definitely catch Adesanya. He's got very good body kicks. Um, used to be, we saw Paulo Costa try to set up the lead right switch kick, and or the left switch kick to the body, and the right um, power kick to the body against Adesanya. Um, even when he landed one or two of them, Adesanya was moving with the kick, moving away from it, so it took away the power. And if it was move, if he was moving towards it, he was at a far enough distance to where only the toes would probably connect on his stomach. So it would be hard for Blahovich to set up that. Um, switch left body kick, he likes to throw out the right hand and then step back and twist his hips and pivot to throw that lead switch kick. Right hand pullback, kind of like a pulley effect to land that left kick to the body. Um, I'm excited for the fight. I hope that that is what, you know, gets booked. But we'll have to see as it goes on. But yeah, Robert Whitaker defeats Jared Cannonier via decision. And then obviously in the main event, Habib Nurmagomedov defeats Justin Gaethje via a second round triangle choke, retires at 29 and 0 undefeated. The undefeated Dagestani phenom, um, he made it look easy. And listen, I've heard a lot of people say, oh, how could you give Gaethje that first round? How could you give Gaethje that first round? I'm going to say it right now. I gave Justin Gaethje the first round against Habib. I thought that his low kicks were a big factor in that first round. Even though it didn't damage Habib, you know, extensively, they landed a lot. He landed a lot of inside and outside low kicks on G- on Khabib, constantly moving, trying to fake and faint. The one thing that I think—hold um, hold on one second— I want to pull up some highlights of the fight. Here we go. Um, We're going to look at it right now. So at the beginning of the fight, you know, Gaethje fought in a lowered stance, and he was constantly just trying to throw those inside and outside low kicks, uh, attacking the inside lead leg of Khabib. He was trying to go with that overhand right and then follow it through with the left hook. That's what landed a lot on Tony Ferguson in their fight, was the right hand to the left hook or the overhand right to load up the left hip to then follow through with the left hook as the opponent circles away. Um, Khabib had very, very good distance management and footwork in this fight. He wasn't very close to Gaethje and he wasn't at the distance that Gaethje wanted him to be at. Gaethje kind of was so worried about the takedown and keeping his lever, level lowered and constantly trying to, biting on the fakes of Khabib to try to uh, uh, stop the takedown, come up right hand, left hook, come over, jab, left hook, and Khabib was just kind of controlling the distance. Um, He would deflect the overhand right by using that lead left-hand frame um, and dipping off to his right side. And then uh, Gaethje tried to go with some jabs to the body and every time Khabib tried to step in, Gaethje tried to meet him head on like a car crash. As he stepped in, um, Gaethje would right-hand, left hook, but Khabib knew that if he kept that frame on the shoulder or the head of Gaethje that the left hook was going to go over the the hand and miss the head because of that frame and control of the shoulder. Um, Gaethje was landing a lot of good outside low kicks. He was slipping and circling away, landing an inside kick. He stuffed two takedown attempts from Khabib, and it was looking like it was going to be good for Gaethje. Um, There was a point where Khabib shot in on catching the inside low kick to a single, but Gaethje got his hips back and got the overhook, um, the whizzer on the arm and circled away. There was a point where Khabib tried to step in and close the range and go for the body lock takedown. Gaethje lowered his level, used that left overhook, turned into Khabib and stepped away. And uh, he was just kind. Of, he was just moving too much. He was so worried about the takedown was Gechi that Khabib was able to control the center of the cage. And usually Gechi's the one who controls the center. But Gechi was so worried about the takedowns that he wasn't worried control. Or he wasn't thinking about the striking technique of Habib. So he was always keeping his lower his level lowered every time Habib would step in. Bah, 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 he was just constantly trying to take him out with power shots, land jabs to the body, keeping his level lowered. And that was kind of, you know, allowing Habib to open up a little bit in the striking. Um, you know, there was a point where Gaethje was doing pretty well circling against the fence, but he was moving so much in anticipation of the takedown that, um, you know, it was making it harder for Gaethje to set up his shots. Um, he tried to land a beautiful left high kick. It kind of just grazed off the head of Khabib. And uh, Khabib was so calm, he was pushing Gaethje back. He was trying to get him up against the fence. The best weapon for Gaethje was the low low kicks. And we said that in the breakdown, that the low kicks were going to be the advantage for Justin Gaethje. Um, Khabib had very, very good defense. I'd said in the breakdown prior to the fight that Khabib's wrestling or Khabib's striking is a lot better than people give him credit for. He's very good with his footwork and movement and stepping in and popping the jab. And he's got that pullback style where he'll keep the right guard up and and frame away with the lead left hand and just pull back and slip and uh, just get his head out of the way to try to avoid the shot. It's awkward, but he barely gets hit because of it. Um, but the low kicks, again, like I said, were the best weapon for Gaethje. But Gaethje just got pushed back too too much. Um, I believe there was a point where Gaethje landed a right uppercut left hook as Khabib tried to step in and close the distance. Yeah, right uppercut left hook, and it looked like it stunned Khabib a little bit, but Khabib just went right back on the pressure, landing the jab trying to get Khabib, or trying to get Gaethje's back to the fence to shoot the takedowns. At the end of the first round, he did end up getting a takedown. I believe he caught the kick of Justin Gaethje. Or no, he uh, Gaethje kicked, and then on the retraction of the kick, as he planted his foot, he was up against the fence. Um, Khabib shot the double leg, turned the corner, and got Gaethje down. Got him in the triangle leg mount, like we said. Gaethje tried to control. Khabib went on the wrist control on the right side, stepped over into mount, and uh, set up a beautiful picture-perfect arm bar, and he tried to go with the bicep slicer to, uh, break the grip of Gaethje and then eventually work to the, like, it was from an armbar position, but he set up like a triangle on the forearm of Gaethje. That is to break the grip that Gaethje used to defend the armbar and then to crush the bicep. It's called a bicep slicer or a bicep crusher. And, uh, Gaethje could have got submitted with that, but he survived the round. And then we went into the second round and that is where everything went South. Um, in the second round. Gechi again tried to land the jab. He looked a little bit calmer in the second round, but he was so tired from worrying about the takedowns that he wasn't able to uh you know, get the best advantage in terms of slipping and uh, in terms of landing his shots that he wanted to land and get into a comfortable position the leg kicks again just constantly attacking the calf um Khabib looked to get affected by the kicks but his movement wasn't severely compromised but then obviously leading up to the finish I said that Gaethje had to make sure he kicked on the calf and he had to watch the retraction of his leg so he landed the calf kick Khabib followed the retraction of that right leg and transitioned into a takedown spun around um, dragged Gaethje to the ground, spun around, got his head around underneath the arm, went to the body lock, got the left hook in on the on the foot or on the leg, the uh, left leg of Gaethje. He got his left hook in. Gaethje tried to roll to his back to then eventually shrimp his hips out to the right, use the underhook and stand back up. As he shrimped, uh, Khabib stepped into the mount, got the got him flattened out in the mount, and then he used he used a triangle setup from the top position which is very very tricky so he got Gaethje to defend and then Khabib stepped around the head trapped the left arm or uh, trapped the right arm in the head and uh, stepped around the head with the right leg and then he controlled the uh, he almost looked to set up an arm bar. so he he stepped around had the arm controlled the, uh, right arm of Gaethje underneath his left armpit. He stepped back. Gaethje tried to roll in and stack Khabib. When somebody goes for a triangle, you want to stack the opponent and put your weight on them to break the grip. And you can either pick them up and slam them, which can either one break the triangle or two, um, cause, You know the triangle to get tighter. So he looked for the armbar. Gaethje stood up, tried to get the, tried to slam him. But what Khabib did is he turned the corner to his left side. He turned the corner on the triangle, which tightens it up, and it also gets you on a better angle to close off any of the remaining space between your thighs and the opponent's head and neck. So as he stacked him up. Khabib uh, got that triangle, turned the corner and hooked the left leg of Gaethje. Now, a lot of people, I think, didn't see that leg hook. Do you know why you turn the corner and hook the leg of the opponent? You hook the leg of the opponent so that they cannot slam you. If you have control of their leg, they can't pick you up because you're controlling their base. And when he went to slam him, Habib had control of the leg, turned the corner, pulled down on the head, and the minute that triangle was locked up, it only took about 5-10 seconds. Gaethje tapped, the referee didn't see it, and he went to sleep. Um Khabib defeats Justin Gaethje and probably one of the best performances of his career, gets the submission victory and retires at 29 and 0. Habib said that was it. He's done um his father's wish was for this or his mother's wish was for this to be his last fight, and that is what it's going to be. Um lately Dana White has said that he believes Khabib will come back for one more fight. I could see it. Um, if he comes back for one more, though, it has to be against George St. Pierre. I know George St. Pierre has you know, vocalized being interested in that fight. Um, he said that he believes Khabib's going to come back for number 30. If he does, it's got to be Khabib Nurmagomedov versus George St. Pierre. I think that that's the way to go. You can't give him any other fight. That's got to be it. That's got to be it. He needs a huge fight. Um, the Connor fight was big. The Gaethje fight was kind of big. The Poirier fight was kind of big, but the uh, George St. Pierre fight would be the biggest fight you could give a guy like Khabib. So I think that he might stay retired. If anybody's going to stick to their retirement wish, it's going to be Khabib because he's so disciplined and he cares so much about his family. Um, I think that if his family gives him a wish or or asks him something, he's going to grant that wish and stick to it. Um, However, if he gets offered the George St. Pierre fight, I think we could see him come back. That would be the only fight I could see Khabib coming back for though. So, yeah, um, obviously undefeated, retires at 29-0. and 0, And what a, what a dominant career Habib had. And, uh, you know, congratulations to him. Um, barely lost a round, let alone lost a fight. I think he's only lost maybe two or three rounds in 29 professional mixed martial arts fights. But he's never been dropped and he's never been cut at all in his mixed martial arts career. Some people could say they've lost rounds, but nobody, I believe, barely anybody could say that they've never been cut. And barely anybody could ever say that they've never been rocked. And uh, Khabib Nurmagomedov can say that. So props to the Eagle on a great career. If he comes back, I hope it's for GSP. If not, then again, props on a great career. Phenomenal grappler. One of the best in the sport. Um, probably the best technician in terms of grappling. And definitely the most dominant we've ever seen in the sport of mixed martial arts. And uh, respect to Khabib. And uh, I wish him the best if he does decide to retire. All right, guys. We're back. And... uh Up next, we can talk about, um, you know what? I would say we'll talk about Uriah Hall versus Anderson Silva. Obviously, um, Uriah Hall TKO'd Anderson Silva in the fourth round in his retirement fight. Um, But I'd actually like to save that for the next episode. I'd like to talk a little bit about Anderson's career. And uh, we'll talk about the card, obviously. But I'd like to save that for um, the next event or the next episode. I think it's important to uh, really give Anderson Silva his due diligence on the podcast. I've never been a huge fan of Anderson. You know, I'm not going to sit here and lie to you. Um, I always wanted to figure out who was going to solve the puzzle of Anderson Silva. You know, who was going to be able to get past that matrix style? Who was going to be able to get past the perky jerky movement and the slipping and the countering Um, and and then the evasive head movement and the sidesteps and and the pivots? Who was going to be able to get past the shots of Anderson? And uh, obviously when he lost to Chris Weidman, you know, the world imploded. And I remember the day that it happened because the day that Anderson Silva lost to Chris Weidman was the day I started my first job. I remember I was, uh, I worked that night. It was my first day and uh, I was so excited to see the Silva fight. So when I got off work, I ran home and I, and I turned it on. And as I turned it on, it was the main event between Silva and your uh Chris Weidman and I remember Weidman stumbling him with that left hook and then you saw Anderson do like that little like you know I don't know what you would call it he did like the the stanky leg or you know he did like the wobbly legs you know like he was on he was on skates and then Weidman went one two came back with the back fist on the left hand or I think it was like a one two I want to say one two back fist with the left or the right hand and then uh, caught him with the left hook as he circled away. He thought he was on a range. Weidman stepped in, cracked him with that left hook, dropped him in the, I remember just jumping up screaming. Cause somebody finally figured it out. And then he fought Anderson again. And that's when Anderson broke his leg in the rematch against Chris Weidman. And, uh, after that, that's where it kind of just all went downhill. He had the phenomenal fight against, you know, Michael Bisping, um, amazing fight if you haven't seen bisping versus anderson silva look up michael bisping versus anderson silva from ufc london and uh you're in for a treat because that fight was absolutely fantastic um really really solid performance from bisping there and really really solid performance from anderson as well there was a point where we thought he knocked out bisping with that flying knee up against the fence and the ref didn't stop the fight but anderson jumped on the cage to uh celebrate and uh You know, he lost to Uriah Hall, and it's funny because I saw somebody post. I mean, it's not funny, but it's weird to see. You know, I was comparing Uriah Hall and Anderson Silva, and a lot of people compared him to Anderson Silva um, in his time on The Ultimate Fighter, and then obviously he wasn't living up to his potential. He did knock out Gegard Mousasi, who just defeated – You know Douglas Lima and is the middleweight champion for Bellator and he's got a phenomenal, phenomenal record in professional mixed martial arts. But he did defeat Gegard Mousasi with that spinning back kick to the head. So and uh, Uriah Hall has had glimpses of you know phenomenal fighting. We know how good he is, but a lot of the times the pressure gets to him. But when Anderson Silva fought Forrest Griffin, he caught Forrest Griffin running in with sloppy punches and countered him with the right hook, I believe. And then when Anderson Silva fought Uriah Hall in that fourth round, Silva was rushing forward trying to catch him, and Uriah Hall countered him with that right hook, dropped him, and finished him. Now, he had dropped him prior in the third round. He dropped him at the end of the third round, but the ref let the fight continue. Um, So he let Silva come to him, timed him, stepping in, and countered him, dropped him, and got the finish. Big win for Uriah Hall, um, a huge win for him and a bit really emotional fight for both guys. Um, you saw Uriah Hall crying, you know, consoling Anderson Silva, having him go out on a loss on his final fight of his UFC career. Um, you know, it, it's tough to see how much Anderson had fallen off in recent years considering he was undefeated for over 2,000 days, um, had about 11, I believe he had 11 title defenses. How many title defenses did Anderson Silva have? I think it was 11. Hold on. And he was on like a 16-fight win streak. He had the record for the most title defenses and longest consecutive win streak. He defended his belt 10 times and won 16 fights in a row. So Anderson, the the Spider Silva, is considered to be one of the greatest of all time. I don't count him as the greatest of all time. My greatest of all time would be George Rush St. Pierre. I think you go GSP. Then I think you go, Khabib. Then I think you go John Jones. Then I think you go Anderson. So that's how I would rank my top four. GSP is the number one greatest of all time. Uh, Khabib is number two. Uh, and uh, John Jones is number three, and Anderson is number four. They both tested positive for PEDs. Did John Jones and Anderson Silva? So you kind of can interchange them. Um, but you know, you know what I mean? That's how I would rank my top four goats of the sport. If I was going to add one more, um, I don't know. Um, if I was going to add one more, who could I add? Um, man, that's hard. I don't know. I just thought of the top four, but I hope you guys enjoyed that little list. Um, like I said, we'll talk more about Anderson Silva and Uriah Hall, the full card on the next podcast. But uh, I just wanted to get that out for you guys really quick. Um, Up next, let's talk about the fight coming up tomorrow night um, from the UFC Apex, Saturday, November seventh, two 2020. That is UFC Fight Night, Tiago Magenta Santos versus Glover Teixeira um, at the UFC Apex. And this is a phenomenal fight. Um, It was supposed to happen on, was it the October 31st card? Or, hold on. Let me see, because it was supposed to happen before, and then I believe Glover Teixeira tested positive for COVID-19. Hold on, Glover. Okay, so that's not listed. Damn. Um, It was supposed to happen at a prior event, and then they canceled it. Um, because one of the fighters tested positive for COVID-19. Now we're back and it's the main event of the evening. Obviously, Glover Teixeira is on a is on a big fight, is on a, a, a pretty lengthy win streak. You know, he beat Anthony Smith via KO. He beat Nikita Krylov, he beat Iwan Kute Laba, he beat Carl Roberson. And then he lost to Corey Anderson. The last fight he lost was on July 22nd, 2018. I don't know why I said it like this. July Uh, July 22nd, 2018, losing a decision to Corey Anderson. And then he obviously has defeated Nikita Krylov, Iwan Kutelaba, Carl Roberson, and Anthony Smith to go on a very lengthy four-fight win streak in the light heavyweight division. Holds a great record overall at 31 wins and seven losses. Um, Tiago Santos obviously holds a win over the current... UFC light heavyweight champion, champion Jan Blahovic um, had a very, very close fight with John Jones at UFC 239, where a lot of people believed he did enough to beat John Jones. I believe that the Dominic Reyes fight against John Jones was a little bit more one sided, and I think that Reyes definitely got robbed in that fight. But Thiago Santos did a phenomenal job, and I thought he beat John Jones too. So, John Jones is coming off two fights back to back where it was controversial wins, um, where a lot of people thought he lost those fights. Um, but Tiago Santos, obviously he tore his MCL, LCL, I think it was his ACL, MCL, LCL, and PCL all in his knee in the first or second round. And he fought five rounds to a decision and, and almost arguably beat, you know, John Jones. So it's interesting to see what Tiago Santos looks like after this long layoff. But let's talk about the rest of the card. Really quick, and then we'll get to the main card. Um, up first on the prelims, we have the feather, in the featherweight division, you have Giga Chikadze, who holds a record of 11 wins and 2 defeats, going up against the newcomer, Jamie, the Afro Samurai Simmons, who holds a record of 7 wins and 2 defeats. You know, Giga Chikadze is coming off that win over Omar Morales. I believed, I thought Omar Morales was going to get the job done. He obviously didn't. Um, the stance switches, the left body kick from southpaw from Giga Chikadze was constantly landing. On Omar Morales, you know, um, Giga Chikadze is a phenomenal, phenomenal kickboxer. I believe we talked about his kickboxing record on the podcast in the last episode, but I let me see, we're going to pull it up because his record was something crazy, their kickboxing record. So his kickboxing record was 38 victories and six defeats in uh, professional kickboxing. So phenomenal, phenomenal kickboxer, good ability to manage, you know, distance and manage range and uh, be able to dictate where the fight takes place. Um, you know, I, like I said, against Omar Morales, it was constantly, when he stands in orthodox, in an orthodox stance, he's very good with his punches. When he switches the Southpaw, look for him to drive that left body kick in, look for him to drive left high kicks, spinning back kicks to the body. Um, he's very good and very, very good at controlling range and has very good movement. He's always in and out kind of faking and feinting pop, 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 kick, kick, kick. His kicking game is his best weapon, but he has good striking overall. I mean, you don't get a 38 and six professional kickboxing record fighting in glory of some of the promotions. Uh, he fought in the featherweight division in glory. And, uh, yeah, you don't get to be as good of a, uh, mixed martial artist as a giga Chikadzi If you don't have that great of kickboxing experience. Well, I'm not, I wouldn't say you don't get to be as good of a mixed martial artist, but you don't get to be as good and smooth at the striking and as, as polished as you do if you don't have the kickboxing experience that Giga Chikazzi has has. Um, when you look at his opponent, uh, Jamie the Afro Samurai Simmons, there's not much to look at in terms of Simmons, but one thing that I think a lot of people tend to overlook that could be a factor in this fight is the wrestling of Jamie Simmons. He's a phenomenal wrestler. I believe he has a national title. Let me check. I'm not 100% sure. Don't quote me on that. But let's see. Jamie Simmons... And um, pull it up. It should pop up right here. Seven and two overall. He's coming off three wins, um, two via knockout and one via submission. The most recent coming over Sean West at Caged Aggression on October 16th, 2020, he won via a second round submission. Before that, he beat Morgan Sickinger at Pure FC by first round knockout. And then before that, he beat Nick Spina, via a TKO in the first round at 36 seconds of the first round. Um, These guys are both very, very solid. Um, I think that the wrestling of Jamie Simmons could give Giga Chikadze some problems. It might make him more hesitant to switch stances, and it might... It'll definitely make him more hesitant to throw kicks to the body from that left side and throw high kicks and throw any type of kicks because Simmons can catch the kick, go head on the inside, transition to a single leg, catch the kick, turn the corner and dump him, catch the kick, shoot a double, transition to a body lock. He's got good wrestling and good top control from the bottom. However, he is good on the feet. He's got good movement in and out, kind of stands in a side stance, kind of faking in and out, stepping in, stepping out of range, fake, fake and faint, pop-pop. He's always looking to set up that overhand right and land the right hand. A lot of wrestlers you see, they're very good wrestlers, and they have a barely, really, really good power right hand, Um, kind of like a Dan Henderson. He's not the same. He moves more than Dan Henderson, and he has a little bit more weapons. Or, or he has more weapons at his disposal than does a guy like, you know, Dan Henderson. But that was just a, a quick comparison that I thought paid dividends in this breakdown of this fight. Um, when you look at Jamie Simmons, like I said, he's got a good power right hand. He's got good movement, good lateral movement, good in and out movement. He's fight He fights pretty calm. He's not, you know, he's not a guy who's going to come in and just look to throw bombs. You know, he steps in here. If you look at his fight against Morgan Sickinger that I just talked about from Pure FC 16. Um, You look at his fight in there, and it's constant movement. He's very, very good and, uh, moving in and out, you know, kind of stepping in, stepping out, stepping in, stepping out, and then he's kind of faking with his hands, trying to get you up against the cage. He'll look to shoot a takedown. He's got a good right kick. Um, he does tend to get knocked off balance when he throws kicks against his opponent. So against Giga Chikadze, I don't expect him to use his kicking game. I think he's going to look to push him up against the fence, throw bombs, um, use his right hand to step into Southpaw and then get to the um, over under clinch up against the fence and then look to shoot takedowns. He's going to look to wrestle. Um, the overhand right that he used against Morgan Sickinger, he likes to counter the inside low kicks of the opponent with an overhand right. If he does that against Giga Chikadze, I think Giga Chikadze is just too quick, too crisp, and too clean. His his striking technique is phenomenal. He's got good knees to the body. If the opponent tries to step in and close the distance too quick, he'll come in and, and land that knee to the body and push you away. Um, I think that could pay big dividends against Jamie Simmons. And uh, yeah, I'm gonna go with Giga Chikadze to get the win. I think he wins via a I'll go a second round TKO. It could be a decision, but I think that the the kicking game of Chikadze is going to keep um, Jamie Simmons at range. He's going to get pieced up inside and outside low kicks and shots to the body and then eventually set up a shot up top and Giga Chikadze is going to get the finish. He's not much of a finisher, and since he's come to the UFC, he's been pretty hot and cold. But oh, after that fight against Omar Morales, who was a very, very solid you know opposition, he looked very good. He dropped Omar Morales with the overhand right, I believe, and, uh, yeah, look for him to switch stance to southpaw and land the body kicks and then go back to orthodox to look to work with his his hands and his boxing. Um, he could switch stance and land that straight left hand, but I'm going with Giga Chikadze to defeat Jamie Simmons via a second-round TKO. And then up next in the middleweight division, we have a great fight between Trevin Giles and... <laughs> who holds a record of 12 wins and two losses and Bevon Lewis who holds a record of seven wins and two defeats. Um, This is a really tough fight to call. You look at a guy like Trevin Giles and he, I believe he's coming off a win over James Krause where a lot of people thought Krause won that fight. I thought if I'm, if I'm thinking right, I think people thought that Kraus won that fight, but I watched the fight back and I thought for sure that uh, Trevin Giles beat James Krause. You know, he is a, this doesn't have anything to do with his fighting career, but he is a police officer uh, on the outside. He has another job as a as a you know police officer. So thank you to him for his service and everything like that, and uh, you know working to you know keep everybody safe. But for him to be as good of a mixed martial artist as he is and be a police officer on the outside, it kind of reminds me of Stipe Miocic, Not him as a fighter, but just you know him being a firefighter and then also working to be a UFC champion. Let's see what Trevin Giles' last fight was. Um, his last fight was against James Kraus, where he won via decision. That was at UFC 247. Um, you know, Trevin Giles has a very swagger esque style he he fights kind of like a boxer in terms of defense he doesn't really keep his hands high he kind of keeps it low tries to move out of the way slip shots catch shots off the shoulder back in and out of range loves to throw that right hand he'll come over the top with it sometimes he'll fake it and then come through with like a wide right hook on almost a, a version of a hook and an uppercut kind of like a hooker cut um it, it could resemble it to a bolo punch but it's not the same um he's got good his right hand is phenomenal his jab is good he loves to just keep you at range land some good kicks pop you with the jab try to counter with that right hand he's got good wrestling and i think against Bevon Lewis his wrestling defense and his scrambling ability is what's going to be the key with Bevon Lewis you look at him and uh He's very, very technical and crisp and clean. He doesn't get into brawls. He doesn't look to push the pace. He looks to push the pace, but under his will and under his control. He's very, he kind of just moves forward. He's got good right high kicks and uh, a good right hand. He loves to pull back and counter with the right hand. If the opponent throws the jab, he'll slip outside and land the right hand. Um, he's always moving. He'll touch the opponent's hands with his hands to stop them and then pop the jabs touch pop pop. He's always moving, slipping, trying to counter and his best work is done up against the fence. He doesn't open up in terms of striking in the center of the cage. He looks to push the opponent back, and if, when he gets him up to the cage and goes to shoot into a clinch exchange and go over under and controlling the clinch, land some knees to the thighs, land some knee to the body, land some punches, he'll break off the clinch and go, ba ba land five or six punches, kind of like a Jeff Neal. If you look at Jeff Neal, he will open up in the center of the cage, but he kind of lets the fight come to him, moves laterally, moves in and out, and once he gets you up against the fence, it's ba 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 it's three, four, five shots. Um, he loves that lead uppercut. Does Jeff Neal to set up the right hand? Bevon Lewis does something pretty similar. And that was the one guy I really thought of when I saw how Bevon Lewis fights. It's pushing him back, pushing him back, get him up against the And, uh, yeah, he's good with opening up once he gets you to the cage and uh, controlling you in the clinch. I think Trevin Giles is good in the scrambling ability. So, if he can avoid getting pushed up against the cage by a guy like Bevon Lewis and letting him control him in the over under, put his weight on him and tire him out, I think he can get the victory. Um, Bevon Lewis, like I said, he's going to want a point fight stick move. Um, I think the movement and slickness of Trevin Giles on the feet where he'll just switch stance, he'll constantly be moving, slipping off the center line, popping the jab, slipping off and countering with the right hand. And I think the, the the variety and the just the overall smoothness of Trevin Giles on the feet and his ability to scramble out of takedown positions, and even if he gets taken down, find a way to either get back up to his feet, hip out, or um, get in the top position. I think that Trevin Giles defeats Bevon Lewis here. Wait, oh man, I don't know. I don't I don't know. This is tough. I just thought of it. Hold on. Um This is such a tough fight. I know I picked Trevin Giles to beat Devon Lewis, but when you really think about it, man, this is such a tough fight to pick. Ugh. I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to go with Trevin Giles to defeat Bevon Lewis. I think that as the fight pl- goes longer, it favors a guy like Bevon Lewis who looks to. Put the pace and pressure on you, push you back, and get you to the cage, and just wilt you, wilt to have you wilt under his pressure. But I think Trevin Giles' movement, the slipping punches, and 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 you know his ability to move and his footwork and countering with weird shots when he throws that right hand, and then ability to scramble is going to get him to cruise to a decision. So I am going to pick Trevin Giles to defeat Bevon Lewis via a unanimous decision. I think he cruises to a decision. That win over James Krause. That's a big win for him. James Krause is very, very good and a veteran of the sport. So that that kind of pushed me to pick him, but I'm picking Trevin Giles for sure. Don't count out Bevon Lewis, though. He can definitely get the job done. All right, up next on the main card, first fight of the evening is in the women's strawweight division. In uh, The number four-ranked Claudia Gadelia holds a record of 18 wins and four defeats going up against the number eight-ranked Yan Xiaonan holds a record of 12 wins, one loss, and one no contest. Um, this is a great fight for the women's strawweight division. You know, Claudia Gadelia, I believe she's coming off a victory over Angela Hill, and did she? And, and you know what? No, I think she beat Randa Marcos in her last fight. Let's see. Okay, no, so she defeated Angela Hill via decision. It was a close fight. I know a lot of people gave the victory to uh, Angela Hill, but it was a close fight nonetheless. And then she also defeated Randa Marcos via decision at UFC 239. So her last fight was on May 16th of this year. So it's been just over five, six months since her last fight. And, uh, yeah, you know, I think this is a good fight. This is a really good fight. I haven't seen much of Yang Nan. you know, she's very, very solid on the feet. The one area I give her an advantage in against Claudia Gadelia is her, um, her speed. She's a very, very quick. She doesn't tend to keep her hands up in a traditional guard all the time. She is pretty patient on the feet, but when she opens up, she tends to overextend herself with her shots, but she's good at pulling away from counter shots of the opponent. So she can, and just counter and find a way to get on the, in, or uh, to counter you stepping in with Claudia Gadelia. She loves to keep her hands high, move around. She likes to throw some kicks. She's a very, very good grappler. I could see her looking to, you know, tra- uh, resort to her grappling in this fight. And I think that, you know, Angela Hill gave Yan Nan a lot of trouble with her grappling and her submission attempts. I believe she almost caught her in a triangle choke at the end of the second round in their fight. And then uh, it, she was saved by the bell, was Yan Xiaonan. Um, I think Nan is dangerous. Like I said, she's got good popping her shots, and the speed is going to be her biggest advantage. When I look at Claudia, she's she's good with her movement. She's had a little bit of a rough patch prior to these last two wins, so she did get back into her groove. Um, she's worked with Mark Henry, I believe, so her boxing and her slipping and countering. She likes to go right hand, step forward into southpaw, and land the right hook. Somebody else you saw use that recently was Anderson Silva against Uriah Hall, so she'll step forward with the right hand, and then as the opponent circles to their left, she'll step forward and cut him off. Stepping into Southpaw with the right hook. I think that could work against Zhao Nan because she pulls back and pulls away from the shots and throws wide counter shots. Um, I think that that could be a big weapon for Claudia Gadelia against Yan Zhao Nan. And looking at recent performances against each of the fighters, I think Claudia Gadelia obviously has a win over Angela Hill. Yan Zhao Nan lost to Angela Hill. So if you're going off MMA math, which we know we can't count on all the time, you know, it's not the most, uh, effective way to judge who's going to win a fight. But I think that Claude has fought the better competition. Nan's no joke. I mean, 12 wins, 1 loss, 1 no contest to 18 and 4. It could be time for the newcomer to step in and take over the division. But I think Claude is wrestling her strength in the clinch exchanges. And her top control is going to win her rounds. I think on the feet, she's good technically enough to counter the wide shots of Nan. And uh, yeah, I think that Claudia Gadelia wins this fight via a unanimous decision. Up next in the middleweight division, a fight I'm really, really looking forward to. You've got the number 15-ranked Ur- Hurricane Ian Heinish, who holds a record of 14 wins and three defeats, going up against Brendan All in Allen, who holds a record of 15 wins and three defeats. Um, when it comes to this fight, you know, breaking it down stylistically, the Hurricane Ian Heinish, you look at his last fight against Gerald Mearshart, and He's very, very good. His striking looked so much better in the fight against Mearshart than it ever did before in his professional mixed martial arts career. One thing I noticed is that in other fights, like against Derek Brunson, When he got pushed back with pressure fighters and he got close to the fence, he wasn't very good at moving laterally against the fence and controlling the distance. Derek Brunson was able to find a way to close the distance and make him uncomfortable in slipping shots against the cage and then enter into clinch exchanges. When you look at the fight against Gerald Mearshart, Mearshart tried to push him back on multiple occasions to the fence, and Ian Heinisch was good at circling, um, stepping on angles, and then when he got to the fence, he would frame away, um, control the distance with that lead hand, kind of like a John Jones, and circle away from the fence and never get trapped by Mearshart. And then eventually, obviously, he was moving in and out. He's always moving Is Ian Heinish. He's constantly, he would touch the lead hand to Gerald Mearshart and counter and throw that outside low kick. Or I believe it's an inside low kick because I think... Mearshart is a southpaw, so he would touch the hand, go inside, touch the hand to get the outside foot, touch the hand to get the outside foot, touch, inside kick, touch, outside kick, faking, feinting, and come through and land that overhand right, dropped him, jumped on him, and got the TKO finish in the first round. So that's a big win for Ian Heinish, and his striking looked better than it ever had. Now, his kicking game always looked pretty good in other fights. He had good high kicks from the lead and the rear side, but he just tended to resort to his wrestling a lot in a lot of his previous fights. Now, you look at a guy like Brendan all-in Allen, and he's phenomenal. You look at his last fight against Kyle Dawkins and it was a barn burner of a fight, a brawl of a fight. Kyle Dawkus is a guy that I think everybody needs to keep their eye on. I know he lost to Brendan Allen, but it was a close fight. I had it two rounds to one for Brendan Allen. I gave Brendan Allen the first and second rounds. And then I gave Kyle Dawkins the third round based on his, you know, ground control grappling ability and an ability to control Brendan Allen as he tired out in the third round. Now I think both of these guys have problems with cardio when it goes to the third round. I think the first two rounds are going to be you know dangerous for both guys. You know Brendan Allen has a win over Kevin Trailblazer Holland which looks very good right now considering the win streak that Kevin Holland is on. He just came off a win over Charlie Ontaveros in uh at UFC Fight Night Silva versus Hall which we'll talk about more on the next podcast. And uh he had a win prior to that against um Darren Stort, Darren the Dentist Stort. Prior to that, he had another victory over somebody else. But Brendan Allen was able to avoid the submission attempts of Kevin Holland and then lock in a rear naked choke, get the back, and get the submission. Brendan Allen has good striking, but his main weapons are his bread and butter is his grappling ability. His kicks are very good. I think the body kicks could be very beneficial against a guy like Ian Heinish, who's going to look to move around. You're going to want to time him circling and catch him with some body kicks, Um, try to slow him down, slow down the movement and the footwork, and then eventually work your way into, into clinch positions over under and look to get the submission. That is where Brendan Allen shines. His grappling, his ability to lock up submissions is phenomenal. He's got good striking. He's got really good striking in terms of landing, you know, power shots, landing kicks, but his br- main bread and butter is in scrambles, getting the body lock, controlling the wrist on the on the ground, like, kind of like the Dagestani handcuff and landing punches to eventually get you to expose your back, get your back, take your neck, and get a rear naked choke. Um, I think Ian Heinisch's scrambling ability and takedown defense is going to make it a little hard for Brendan Allen to get some of these transitions, but I think that he's just better all the way around. I know that Ian Heinish is looked very good against Gerald Mearshart and his striking looked better than it ever has. And Brendan Allen does get hit. So he could tend to get hit in this fight and hurt by Ian Heinish because of how explosive he is. But I think Brendan Allen is just the overall more well-rounded mixed martial artist. And I think he's going to find a way to, um, in the Derek Brunson fight, he didn't get traditional takedowns. He was able to, get takedowns in off of missed strikes and off of overextending on shots from Ian Heinish and then trying to take the body lock or trying to slip a shot, slip underneath and get the body lock and work for takedowns from there. I think that that is a place where Brendan Allen is very, very solid. I think it's striking on the feet. I think Ian Heinish is going to have a little bit of an advantage in terms of the striking, but I think setting up grappling transitions and setting up submission attempts from the feet in terms of slipping a shot and getting the body lock going underneath and looking for submissions or slipping and countering and uh you know slipping and countering or shooting a single leg taking him down getting his back getting the hooks in i think he's going to catch and Heinish slipping on the feet um Tie him up in a body lock up against the fence, get him down, take his back, get the hooks in, and get the submission. My pick is Brendan Allen allen to defeat the Hurricane Ian Heinish via a second-round rear naked choke. Alright, up next in the Bantamweight division, you have a fight between two dangerous, dangerous prospects in Hani Barcelos, who holds a record of 15 wins and one defeat, going up against Khalid, the warrior Taha, who holds a record of 13 wins, two defeats, and one no contest. Um, when looking at this fight, I didn't do extensive research on this fight, so to speak, but when it comes down to it, when you look at a guy like Hani Barcello's, he's very, very calm and patient on the feet. He's very good at just kind of letting the fight come to him, countering shots and looking to set up grappling transitions from the feet. But he's also a dangerous striker. Hani Barcelos can definitely land good shots on the feet and hurt the opponent. If you look at some of his fights prior, he kind of, he's very patient and, you know, being patient for a guy like Hani Barcelos is a good thing against somebody like Khalid Taha. Khalid Taha is patient but he's but he's more reckless and has more power than does Hani Barcelos. Khalid Taha can find a way to shift his stance into into southpaw and boom counter with that right hook. He's very fast and very good at closing the distance. Hani Barcelos is a phenomenal, phenomenal grappler. Like I said, on the feet he's comfortable, he's patient, and he can land good shots. He's got a very powerful left hook, a good right hand, um, good kicks to the body, and uh, he likes to step back and counter with that right hand. He'll catch you coming in and counter you. Um, with Khalid Taha. Again, it's good uh, Good power from Taha, good ability to, uh, good movement, and good ability to step into range, bah, 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 step into range, bah, 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 and land some power shots. He's got good submissions. You saw in his last fight, I believe, he got a submission win over, let's see. Um, he got a submission Against Bruno Silva. And then prior to that, he knocked out Boston Salmon at UFC 236 in a fight where I believe he was a huge underdog. A lot of people thought that Boston Salmon's boxing and the fact that he shared the amateur circuit with uh, the Nationals in boxing with Errol Spence Jr. Um, they were on the same circuit. I believe they fought each other actually. Um, he got the win again, like I said, he, I think he was in orthodox. He stepped forward into southpaw and popped him with that right hook, bah, boom, or with that left hook, I'm sorry, but by switching stance and put it in the power hand, bop, bop, bop. And, uh, he landed that and dropped him and got the finish in the first round in 25 seconds. So Khalid Taha can come in and shut your lights out, but he's also got good submissions. Like I said, against, uh, Bruno Silva, the one area we thought in that fight that Khalid Taha was going to have the advantage was on the feet. And then with Bruno Silva, he was going to have the advantage in the jujitsu. I believe Silva was out grappling him early on in the fight and out positioning him on the ground, controlling him. But Khalid Taha found a way to lock up an arm triangle and get the submission victory, which is a big win for him because we didn't think that that's where he was going to be able to win that fight. Now with Hani Barcelos, he's got good striking. Like we said, he can land good shots, but his bread and butter in terms of his overall game is his jujitsu. He's looking to lock up, lock you up. He's looking to take your back, get the hooks and control your wrists, get them the arm under the chin and get the submission and control you on the, on the ground. Now with guys who are such dangerous grapplers, it, it opens up the striking because your opponent is hesitant to come in and try to land shots on you. And like I said, Hani Barcelos has good power, good right hand, a vicious, vicious left hook. But if he's going to win against Taha, he's going to look to set up his grappling. And since Taha is probably the faster, more explosive fighter on the feet and has an ability to close distance quicker than Honey Barcelos, I would expect him to, uh, you know, I would expect him to look to shoot under the the punch attempts, look to get him to overextend and shoot. But he has good striking. There was a point where people thought he looked like a prime Jose Aldo when he knocked out. Uh, I forgot who the opponent's name, what the opponent's name was, but it was an uppercut overhand right, looping uppercut overhand, uppercut overhand, and he dropped the opponent and knocked him out, looking like a prime Jose Aldo. So even though he's so dangerous on the ground, he's almost equally as dangerous on the feet. I think that Khalid Taha is the better striker, but Barcelos has good head movement, slipping to rip into the body, coming up top, kind of letting the fight come to him. Cause like I said, he's very patient and tactical with Khalid Taha. He's a little bit more anxious, a little bit more overextending and looks to just knock you out and land some shots. But again, he does have good grappling as well and has gotten a arm triangle choke over a guy in, I believe his name. What did I just say? Uh, uh, triangle ch- or arm triangle choke against Bruno Silva in a fight where we thought Silva was going to have the jujitsu advantage. So this is a close fight. It's definitely a fight to keep your eye on, but if I got to go with a winner, I'm going to go with Hani Barcelos to get the victory via a second round submission. I think he finds a way to get Taha on the ground, get him to over, uh, get him to panic a little bit and open up his back. And then Barcelos takes his back gets the hooks in, gets the rear naked choke, and gets the finish. So I'm going to go with Hani Barcelos to defeat Khalid Taha via a second-round rear naked choke. All right, up next in the co-main event of the evening in the heavyweight division, you have a former veteran of the sport and a former heavyweight champion, I believe, in the UFC. That is Andre the Pitbull Arlovsky. He was a former UFC heavyweight champion. I don't know why I said, I believe. I know he was. Um, His his record overall is 29 victories, 19 defeats, and two no contests. You know, he's just, once you fight for a very long time, especially in the heavyweight division, your chin tends to go, and uh, he's facing Tanner Bozer. Tanner the bulldozer Bozer, who holds a record of 19 wins, six defeats, and one at no contest. Tanner Bozer is on a bit of a win streak. He had that brutal, brutal victory over – hold on. I can't think of the guy's name, Tanner Bozer. All right, Tanner Bozer has a first round second round KO over Rafael Pessoa who uh he he caught him with a wide left hook and uh you know hurt his eye. I think he might have broke his orbital bone, dropped him and finished him and then prior to that he had a first round knockout victory over Felipe Linz um, at 2 minutes 41 seconds of the first round and it looked phenomenal. I mean, he countered, he landed the overhand right over the jab. Um, Felipe Lin's kind of stumbled and then Bozer just opened up with right hand, left hook, left uppercut, right hand, left hook, caught him with a left hook, a right hand, I believe as he went down on the ground, he landed a left back fist and smacked his head off the canvas and knocked him out. It was like a six, seven, eight shot combo. And it's very, very quick. Tanner Bozer's movement, footwork, lateral movement, in and out movement, ability to switch stances. You know, he'll stand in orthodox stance. He'll throw that right-hand switch to southpaw to set up the wide left hook. I believe that actually might be the punch that he caught Rafael Pesol with. I believe he he shifted his weight. He was in orthodox, threw the right-hand switch to southpaw, came over the top with a beautiful left hook. Um, Tanner Bozer. I just think he's a lot better than Arlovsky. I know Arlovsky has had some good victories, but lately he's been getting clipped with shots that look like they barely land and knock him out like against Jerzinho Rosenstrike as he was backing up he countered him with that left hook coming in. Looked like it barely landed and it knocked him out. Against uh Francis Ngannou, obviously anybody who gets hit by Andre or uh, by Francis Ngannou is going to get knocked out. Um, he's coming out. He beat Felipe Lins via decision and Tanner Bozer knocked Felipe Lins out in the first round. Now, again, you can't go off of MMA math, but Arlovsky has f- adopted more of a point fighting style, trying to move laterally, trying to pop opponents with the jab and catch them. Um, he defeated Ben Rothwell via decision, lost to Jerzinho Rosenstrike by knockout, um, lost to Augusto Sakai via decision what else, what else, um... Lost to Shamil Abdurahimov by decision. Lost to Taitu Avasa by decision. He fights in more of a point-fighting style. And against a guy like Tanner the Bulldozer Bozer, who's going to look to come in and land vicious punches, use switch stances, use lateral movement. I think that the switch stance combinations where he's going to look to shift his weight, step into southpaw and land that left hook or land the right-hand switch to southpaw, right-hand switch and land the right hook on the exit. I think he's going to catch Andre Orlovsky. I think his chin is just too deteriorated at this point. I think this is an easy win for Tanner Bozer. Obviously Arlovsky's a veteran. He might have some few tricks up his sleeve, but I'm going with Tanner, the bulldozer Bozer to get the victory via a first round knockout. <sighs> okay, now we move to the main event of the evening, the fight we've all been waiting to talk about in the light heavyweight division. You have the number one ranked former light heavyweight title challenger, Tiago Magenta Santos, who holds a record of 21 victories and 7 defeats. Going up against the number three ranked Glover Teixeira, who holds a record of 31 wins and 7 defeats. And, uh, Anthony, uh, Glover Teixeira coming off that phenomenal win over Anthony Smith, where it looked like he was getting beat in the first two rounds. Anthony Smith was putting it on him. And then Glover Teixeira just found a way to push forward, get Anthony Smith to tire himself out by opening opening up and overexerting himself. Right hand, left hook, pop, pop, pop. Caught him with a left hook, dropped him, boom, boom, boom. Jumped on top of him, got it, got control on the ground, landed some vicious shots. They went to the fourth round. Um, you know, he dropped him again, I believe. I think it when he dropped him with that left hook, it was in the fourth round. Bop, pop, bop, dropped him, jumped on top of him. And, uh, you know, a constant ground and pound, ground and pound, ground and pound. Um, Anthony Smith said, I think my teeth are falling out. He took so many unanswered shots in that third and fourth round. And uh, let me see, actually. Hold on. Shara it was a fifth round knockout. So I believe he hurt Anthony Smith in the third and then hurt him again in the fourth. And then they just gave it, had to go to the fifth round. And Anthony Smith said in between the fourth and fifth, you know, my teeth are falling out. His teeth were falling out in the mouthpiece. He was taking so much un- so many unanswered shots and just getting the absolute dog shit beat out of him. Glover's chair was beating the dog shit out of Anthony Smith and he was having a tough fight in the beginning of that fight. He was getting clip hit with the jab every single time. The one, two of Anthony Smith, the one, two uh, left hook, the jab to the overhand, right? Kind of, kind of coming over the guard and, and sneaking through the guard of Glover, but Glover just kept moving forward putting the pace on him, kind of calmly pressuring him to the cage and then working his game up against the fence. Boom, 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 left hook, one, two, slip right hand. He'll slip off to that lead side over the lead leg, pop that right hand. Sometimes he'll shift in with that right hand, you know, bop, boom, dart in with the right hand, um, come through with the left hook, right hand, left hook. Everything from Glover Teixeira is very, very technical it's it's jab cross follow with a left hook it's cross follow with a left hook jab followed by the right hand right hand slip left hook jab right hand left hook uppercut everything is technical everything is tactical when you look at a guy like Tiago Magenta Santos Magenta is very, very quick, but he's got very, very good footwork and movement. The thing about Glover is he tends to move in a singular forward pattern. He doesn't tend to use a lot of angles, use a lot of footwork. He uses a lot of head movement and counters for his defense in his MMA game. And uh, he has been knocked out. Tashira gets hurt in a lot of his fights. He got hurt by Iwan Laba He got hurt with elbows when he went to shoot a takedown against Carl Roberson up against the fence. He got... Um, knocked out by Anthony Rumble Johnson, which that's, you know, nothing to be ashamed of because if Rumble catches anybody on the chin, unless your name's Daniel Cormier, he's going to knock you out. Um you know, Glover, like I said, he's very technical, very tactical. He He's not as fast. He's going to be at a speed disadvantage against Santos. Santos is, like I said, very quick on the feet, faking in and out, switching stances. He'll fake that little shuffle step in with the kick and then throw the right hand. He'll fake that little shuffle step, throw the left hook. He'll fake the lead leg kick, throw the lead leg kick, throw the left hook. He'll fake the lead leg kick. He'll fake the low, the outside low kick to set up his left hook. He'll step in, fake and feint. He's always moving, always gliding around the cage. He's got good kicks. Um, looks to throw spinning tornado roundhouse kicks, spinning back kicks, jumping roundhouse kicks. He's just a wild, wild competitor. You look at the fight against John Jones, and the reason he was able to win that fight is because anytime John Jones would make a misstep, Tiago would come forward, bah, 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 five, six punches. He would bah, 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 come forward and land some shots, um, land some kicks. He landed a high kick on John Jones, I believe. And I thought Tiago Santos beat John Jones when Glover Teixeira fought John Jones. He got beat at his own game. John Jones fought him in the clinch, up and close, in uh, dirty boxing, where Glover shines and beat him at his own game. Glover gets hurt a lot in his fights, and that's a thing that I think is going to be a big, big problem against Santos because Santos, he did get hurt against Jimmy Manua up against the cage, but then eventually you saw how crazy that fight was. They were getting hurt left and right. Santos caught Manua coming in right at the beginning of the fight with a right hand in the clinch, almost finished him. The fight kept going. Santos got taken down by... um, Santos got taken down by Manua. He scrambled back up to his feet, um, and then eventually he landed a – you saw Manua kind of land and roll under a shot, and he got, boom, caught with an uppercut, and then, boom, right over the top and uh, dropped and finished in the second round of their fight at UFC – when was it? 231, I want to say. I think it was UFC 231. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but let's look at some of the stats. I mean, it's very even in terms of stats. They both have the same height, 6 feet 2 inches, same reach at 76 inches, same leg reach, which is 42.5 inches for both Glover and Santos. When you look at win percentages, um, Thiago Santos is a finisher. He's 71% of his wins coming by way of knockout. Um, versus 59% of wins coming by way of KO for Glover. 5% of his wins coming by way of submission is Santos and 28% of his wins coming by submission for um, Glover. 24% by decision, 14% by decision for Glover. Average fight time, um, Tiago has a shorter fight time. Santos does at 7 minutes and 36 seconds to 9 minutes and 6 seconds for uh, Glover Teixeira. Knockdown averages per 15 minutes. It's almost two knockdowns for Glover. Santos to 0.45 for Glover, um, 1.25 knockdowns per 15 minutes for Santos and 0.45 for Glover Teixeira. Um, when you look at significant strike percentages, um, 4.44 landed per minute for Santos to 3.74 for Glover. Significant strikes, 47% accuracy rate for both guys. And then absorbed per minute, Santos takes less shots at 219 Strikes absorbed per minute for Santos to 3.87 for Glover. So since Glover is so reliant on that slipping head movement style, he tends to get hit a lot with jabs and hit as he slips. Um, with defense, it's pretty close. 57% of significant strikes defended for uh, Santos to 55% defended for Glover to Teixeira. Now the grappling, this is where it could be an advantage for um, Glover, even though Santos doesn't tend to get taken down that much. Um, 0.83% of takedowns for Santos to almost two takedowns per 15 minutes for Glover at 1.87 takedown accuracy. Uh, Santos actually has the higher accuracy in terms of takedowns, which is 40% to 38% for Glover and takedowns defended 68% of takedowns defended by Santos to 60% defended by Glover to And then the submission average 0.1 for Santos and 0.9 for Glover. Now, both guys have wins over Anthony Smith. Obviously, uh, Tiago Santos beat Anthony Smith at middleweight with a body shot. I believe he landed a left body kick and hurt Smith and then jumped on him for the finish. Uh, Santo, or uh, Anthony Smith was piecing up Glover Teixeira, but Glover just kept pushing forward. And since he's, like I said, usually at a speeded disadvantage because he's an older guy, he's more used to letting the fight come to him, getting your patterns, and then countering you with his grist boxing. Um, I think that could be a weapon against Santos, but Santos is so wild and throws so many shots and Glover gets hit so much that it tends to make me think that Santos is going to be able to catch him. I think Santos is the quicker guy without a doubt. I think Santos... When it comes to power, I think Santos has more power, but I think Glover is so crisp in terms of his punching technique that that might make up for the power disadvantage that he has when compared to Santos. Um, I mean, you look at MMA math, Santos almost beat John Jones. Glover got dominated by John Jones. They both beat Anthony Smith. Um, You know, Santos, I think, had an easier time against Anthony Smith. Um, The one thing that I think is a big factor is... Thiago Santos has a victory over the for the current light heavyweight champion, which we talked about earlier, Jan Blahovic. And having a victory over a guy like Blahovic, who's the current champion, um, and he did it in a way where people thought that that's how Blachowicz was going to beat Santos. They thought that Santos was going to win by coming forward, pushing the pace, and catching him with a bomb. But the, the way he won is how people thought Blachowicz was going to win, which was coming back, stepping back, and countering. So as Blahovic stepped in with a combination and came forward, uh, I believe Santos landed a right hand to a beautiful left hook, but he switched, he stepped back into southpaw and boom, landed that power left hook, dropped Blahovic and finished him off in the second round. So when it comes to the winner in this fight, I just think that Santos's speed and his variety on the feet is going to lead to Glover Teixeira getting caught and finished. I think that Glover can win. And we don't know what Santos is going to look like because he's been gone uh, after that knee surgery. He's been gone since March of 2019, so that's over a year and a half since uh, we've seen Santos back in the cage. Obviously, last fight was for the light heavyweight title against John Jones. But when it comes down to predicting the fight, and uh, I think, like I said, Glover can win but I think closing the distance and getting in close on Santos is so difficult because of how many kicks, how many flying knees, how many spinning kicks, back kicks, capoeira kicks, and just the vicious power and speed and explosiveness that Santos has. I think he's going to catch Glover on the chin and knock him out. I think it's going to be a quick night. Um, I'm going to go with the second round knockout for Tiago Santos. I think the first round Glover is going to get hurt. I think Glover might find a way to get Santos up against the cage and look for a takedown. Santos is going to be at a disadvantage in terms of grappling and jujitsu. If Glover Teixeira is looking to get the victory, he's going to want to fake and then catch Santos, maybe throw in a kick, catch him off balance because he does tend to move pretty wild around the cage, catch him off balance, take him down, and control him on the ground. That is where he's going to have the biggest advantage over a guy like Santos. So, For Glover, it's push him up against the cage, get a takedown, and work your top control. Glover's top control is vicious. um, Vicious ground and pound Glover lands. Good control of the wrist, getting the back control, getting the hooks in, landing shots, looking for rear naked chokes, um, scrambling and moving, flowing on the ground. You know, Glover's phenomenal at that. We see more of his striking in a lot of his recent fights, but when he tends to lose a fight and get hurt, he tends to resort to his grappling. I think we're going to look to see Glover to share a resort to his grappling against Thiago Santos, but I think Santos is good at stuffing the takedowns and getting his hips back, even if he does get taken down. He's very good at timing, engaging the distance on takedowns, and getting his hips back before the opponent can fully shoot the takedown. So, yeah, I'm going with uh, Santos. I think the wild and ver- the variety of his striking and the power and the speed is going to be the advantage. I think the speed is the biggest advantage for Santos and the variety of his shots. Glover's more of a traditional boxer. He will throw kicks, but they're mainly to the legs. Glover or uh, Santos will throw kicks to your legs, to your body, to your head. It doesn't matter. So I am going to go out and pick Tiago Magenta Santos to defeat Glover Teixeira via a, second round TKO. I think he catches them coming in, drops them and gets a TKO finish. Um, Yeah, that's going to be it for this episode, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed. I will have fight announcements, recent fight announcements on the next episode. More than likely, that'll be tomorrow. I might have three episodes coming at you this week. Um, One on WWE and then one more on the UFC and upcoming fights. And uh, thank you guys for listening. It means a lot. Our audience has been growing very, very much in recent um, weeks and months. And uh, thank you guys for listening. Obviously, get leave a review for my podcast, guys. If you guys listen and you love my podcast, the more reviews and positive reviews we get, um, even if it's not positive, you know, leave a review. If you want to leave a review for my podcast, definitely do it. Um, obviously, you could leave it on Apple Podcasts. My podcast is available anywhere you can get your audio podcast. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Stitcher, Overcast, and many, many more. Um, thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Double M, and I'm out. Have a good night, everybody. All right?